today on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making Podcast. We conclude our series, The Gospel, How to Share the Good News of Jesus, with special guest Pastor Brian as he unpacks how to share the good news of Jesus with the non-religious. Let me pray for us. Uh, We do, like I said, have a time to get through tonight, so I want to be sensitive to your time. I want to have some good uh, time for Q&A. I think think tonight is a really important night um, for evangelism in all of our lives. You know, Catholics and and Mormons uh, are prevalent in our communities, um, but to no extent like the nuns are. And so uh, you're around these folks all day. I want to make sure we see them and know how to engage with them. So let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord, we love you. Pray for tonight, God. I pray, Father, that you'd continue to shape us more and more into men and women who uh, look like you, Father, who represent you well to the world around us, who live our lives to um, be ambassadors of reconciliation, Lord, to those who are far from you. You have um, reconciled us to yourself, you tell us in Second Corinthians 5, Father, and out of that you have made us all ministers of reconciliation. Um, it's not just pastors who are, who are ministers, Father. It's all of us, um, ambassadors for your good message of reconciliation. So would you make us good heralds of the cross, Father? Would you tonight convict us of um, places where we've been quiet with uh, some of our friends who, who are, are lost around us? And would you continue to grow boldness in our hearts? Uh, to be a faithful people in this area. Uh, we love you, Lord. Lead us as we, uh, as we seek to follow you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so tonight, again, is all about the nuns. Uh, and, and I want to start off right with definitions. Any guesses at who the nuns are? I'm, I'm sure some of you have read books or heard podcasts or things about the nuns. But, uh, but who are the nuns? They are not the, the women wearing black garb and, and white tops. Um, but agnostics is is one of them um atheists fall in there as well this is a good definition if you want to write some things down uh, i think i've got some blanks for you uh who are the nuns uh the nuns are all the people who would reply to the question which religion do you adhere to with the answer none none of the above um they are folks who hold no religious affiliation of any kind they do not hold to any formal faith. So they would not call themselves Christians. They wouldn't call themselves Mormons or Catholics or Buddhists or Muslims or anything. Um, they are a really fast-growing segment of our world that really sort of uh, segments itself away and, and disassociates itself from organized religion of any kind, and they prefer to identify themselves as none. Um, they are the nuns. And uh, it doesn't mean at all that they don't consider themselves spiritual. Many of them do. Um, but they're not religious, um, and that's sort of their main distinction. They disassociate themselves from religion. Um, and we're going to think a lot about how to engage them, but I want to take most of our time here at the beginning to try and understand them as well as possible. So um, who they are, um, what they believe, how big of a population this is within our uh, community. There's a lot of good books that have been written on this. A, lo- a lot of this is really... Uh, come to the forefront of our conversation over the last 15 years. So, um, and and we'll see that as we go, but uh, the number of people who identify as a nun um, has been growing rapidly and really was was not noticeable up until about uh, 20 years ago. And and so 
uh, as it grows so rapidly, you know, cultural uh, researchers are paying attention. A lot of Christians are paying attention to it. Um, and so I hope tonight will be fruitful. I've, I've tried to read as much as I could to, to make this conversation helpful. But um, so uh, I'd like to start off with some categories. Um, I think we could probably fit them all into three main categories, broadly speaking. They probably would not call themselves any of these words. Some of them would. Um, but so, that, so they're not perfect categories. Um, but I think they'll help us contextualize a little bit better who these people are. So first one would be atheists. These would be people who deny that God exists, any God. So uh, they, they fully disagree with the existence of a God, which is why they are a nun. Um, those would be the atheists, which is a, honestly a very difficult position to hold intellectually um, because you, if, you, if you're a classical atheist, you don't hold any, um, you're not open to any uncertainties. In this, in this space of spiritual things. So you are certain that there is no God. That's what makes you an atheist. You believe with certainty that God can exist. You have logical reasoning in your mind that you think disproves the possibility of a God ever existing. Um, and it's not just people who are opposed to Christianity. This would be, you know, atheism rejects all gods of any kind. Usually, atheists are very educated and very persuaded of their perspective. So within the world of nuns, if you do talk to someone, and, and these people usually do self-identify as atheists. So um, if you're speaking with somebody who's an atheist, they're not usually very wishy-washy on what they believe. They have, they have uh, well-thought-through grounds for what they think um, as they reject religion. Um, and therein they can often be very antagonistic to the concept of God. Not always, but, but very often, if you're talking with an atheist, um, they can be very aggressive if you, if you try to bring up conversations of God. <clears throat> Has anybody had experiences with atheists where you've sensed all of that? <clears throat> Me as well. So that would be the first category. Second one would be agnostics. These would be folks who uh, deny that God can be known. <clears throat> so they aren't willing to say that God does exist or that he doesn't. They just would say that if he does or if he doesn't, we can't know it. Um, that he has not revealed himself sufficiently to be known. Um, so this is a much more common uh, view. And, and people who call themselves agnostics sometimes don't realize what agnosticism actually means. So some people are very open to the idea of God may even hold spiritual views, but true agnostics really shouldn't. They, they believe that God can't be known, and therefore um, they don't really have any spirituality to speak of. Um, so all that to say, if somebody calls themselves agnostic, they might just be using that to say, I really don't know what I believe. Um, uh, but, but some people may be very well educated in their agnosticism, um, but I, I have found in conversations that most people um, this is not a very deeply held worldview. It's more just like a, a rejection of what they do know, um, but, but openness that they don't know everything. Um, and then the third category we could call the apathetic. <laughs> um, I read an article that defined these people as apatheistic as well. Um, but these people would be those who don't care if God exists. So they're not militant um, for the most part. Um, they don't really know, but they also don't really care. They're, they're disinterested in talking about religion. They're disinterested in thinking about it. Their focus on this life and their world is much more from a naturalistic worldview, 
worldview typically. So they see the answers to why, they, why the world exists, why they exist in science, and they see no need to look for answers in religion or in God. Um, none of these people are going to call themselves apathetic. They just, that's, that's a word that we could use to describe them. Um, but they're not really, uh, in some ways, they're less open to conversations about God than agnostics, I think, because they just don't care. They don't, you know, it's an irrelevant conversation to them. Um, but they would also, you know, sort of fall within this category if they were filling out a survey of, I adhere to no religion. Um, so let's, from there, look at some statistics. <clears throat> this is a rapidly, rapidly growing part of our um, population. So Pew Research Center, anybody familiar with them? Fana uh, fantastic and very fascinating uh, research outlet. They release articles all the time. They have a, I mean, they do a lot of polling on a lot of topics, but if you go to their website and, and filter through to the religious section, a lot of their research articles are fascinating to read. Just if you ever see, um, you know, in whatever news source you read, a, a report that a new report from the Pew Research Center has been released, uh, I'd encourage you to read it. It's usually pretty interesting. But they do something called the uh, Religious Landscape Study of the U.S. every seven years. Um, they started this in 2007, which was really when the conversation about the nuns uh, came to the mainstream. They repeated it in 2014, and then it was due to happen in 2021. The, the, um, they might have done it, but their uh, results have not been released yet. I think COVID sort of delayed things. So we should get an update to these numbers soon. Um, but they also do in addition, so, so all that to say, these big data points with the boxes, right here in 2007 and right here in 2014, is from the best religious landscape study in the country um, that they do every seven years. But then the other ones are from like uh, political polls and stuff. They do a lot of polling on a lot of topics, and so they do get data pretty regularly. Um, but this, is, uh, this, this sort of showcases pretty well the rise of the nuns. Uh, especially in the last 15 years. So in 2007, 51% of uh, Americans identified as Protestants, 24% uh, identified as Catholics, uh, and then you had a collective 16% that were the nuns. So 12% just said nothing in particular, but another 2% um, were agnostic, another 2% atheist. In 2014, you can see the nun category jump from 16% to 23 Um and the Protestant and the Catholic uh, categories both, both fell. Um, and the nothing in particular category grew the most. 2019, just a you know, short, shorter segment later, but uh, those trends continued. So 43% identifying as Protestant, 20% as Catholic, <clears throat> and 26%. Uh, so th that's the number I want you to key in on. We were at 16% in 2007 of people who would fall within this category of the nuns and now in 2019 which is two years or three years ago now um, it had risen all the way to 26 percent one out of four so this is a significant part of our uh, the makeup of religious beliefs in the u.s in fact uh, altogether when you put all three categories together this accounts for the, like the, the fastest growing religion in america right now is people who don't hold to a religion um, Naturalism, you could call it. Uh, materialistic worldview, you could call it that as well. But it's a rapidly growing way to interact and view the world around you. People are rejecting 
formal religions and formal faiths in order to disassociate with uh, religion. And the, the larger this number grows, the more alarming it becomes because it becomes more culturally acceptable to not associate with a faith. Um, and we know this because these numbers are really just about 20 years behind what's been playing out in Europe. Um, if, you, if you track some of the statistics from the past over there, uh, you see this category just continue to rise rapidly. So we don't know how high it will go, uh, only the Lord knows the future, but uh, regardless, we can see very clearly that uh, it's a growing category. It now makes up um, uh, a significant uh, you know, part of religion. It's, it, you could argue that it's the second largest religion in America with more adherence than the Catholics have. Um, <clears throat> so with that being said, let's look at our area in particular. So this little red zone uh, falls within, um, it's a map, there's a great organization that will do this kind of research for any church out there, but they did it for us, and this is a 20-minute drive from Emmaus Church, that's why it looks so strange. The furthest data points are on interstates, because you can drive further on the interstate, um, but if you live in that red square, theoretically, you can get to this place in 20 minutes. Square, that's not a square. I don't know why I said that. Um, any guesses on if, uh, our, how our numbers vary from the national statistics? We're in the Bible Belt, we're down here in the South. You work and live with your neighbors. Any guesses on if we are better or worse when it comes to the national statistics? By better or worse, I should clarify. Do you think that there are more nuns in Buford or less nuns in Buford? This whole conversation is very strange if you think about the you know, Sound of Music nuns every time I say it. Um, but any guesses? If you think there are more nuns in Buford, raise your hand. If you think there are fewer, raise your hand. And too many of you are indecisive. So about the same. Fascinatingly, significantly more nuns here. Significantly more. So 34.7% uh, Protestant around here. Um, that's less than the national average. 17.9% uh, Catholic, that is also less than the national average, and then there's our, our nun category, 34.1%. So not 26% around us, not one out of four, but this is uh, one out of three, a little bit more than one out of three, would say that they have no religious preference. Um, there's all the other ones, which I thought was interesting, just wanted to include them. Somehow I totally, I didn't see this until uh, uh, recently, and uh, when we were putting this class together, we were trying to tackle the biggest ones, but we totally missed Judaism, apparently. I did not realize it, but 5% of our community is Jewish, or at least would call themselves Jewish. Um, Mormonism falls in after that. Buddhism, 2.6%. That kind of makes sense. There's quite a significant Buddhist um, following in the Duluth um, side of town. There's a few, do they call them temples? Buddhist temples over there? Um, very small uh, population is Islam. Wicca is the same, um, uh, same number of adherents as Islam, 0.5% each. Jehovah's Witnesses is pretty small as well, which it feels like more because they knock on our doors, but um, very, very small uh, segment of our community. All the other religions are um, smaller than 0.4%, so uh, they're on there. There are adherents of a lot of religions in our area, but vast, vast majority are represented in that list right there. Um, kind of surprising, right? This was shocking to me when I saw that. I did not expect that. I thought that there would be 
uh, fewer nuns in our area than uh, nationally. Um, and I really don't understand this. I don't, I don't understand the, um, I don't feel like I experience this in my own personal interactions with people. I, I find maybe I hang out with too many Christians, but even in my neighborhood, interacting with uh, people at the pool, uh, most of the people I, I talk to go to a Christian church of some kind. So I was very surprised to see these numbers, um, but they're from the same um, you know, data points, all that to be said. Um, I thought this was interesting too, not really relevant to the nuns, but uh, any guesses what's the largest denominational? This is the denominational breakdown of the Protestant category. Any guesses on... Well, well done. Alex wins the points. There you go. 9.3%. So this is not of Protestants. It's not 9.3% of Protestants, but of all people in our area. So this makes up, these categories make up the 34% that was on the previous page. So uh, about 10% of our community is non-denominational, 5% Lutheran, 4.2% Presbyterian, 3.8% Baptist, Congregational, Methodist, Episcopalian, Pentecostal, and other. Interesting, right? I really thought Baptists would be way high. Yeah. What are we? We would fall on this list. We would fall into, I think, the non-denominational category because that is formally what we are. But interestingly enough, doctrinally, I think we most closely align with the Reformed category. We're interesting, doctrinally speaking, here at Emmaus Church, we are Reformed Baptists. Um, so just as you think about your own uh, church community. We are reformed in our theological perspective, so that means we hold to the doctrines of grace um, that were reestablished in the Reformation, um, uh, Calvinism, uh, as it's often called. Um, but we are Congregationalist, which means we believe in the autonomy of the local church, um, which is a very Baptist doctrine, and we believe in baptism by immersion as well. So, um, so we are kind of we're a non-denominational church, not affiliated with any denomination, but we are Reformed and Baptistic in our doctrines. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and a little bit congreg... I think that means something else, though. Congregationalism as a denomination, I don't know fully what they believe, but um, that is a little distinctive. Calvinist. We are. We are. It, it does. I actually, personally, I rarely say uh, that we are Calvinist church, mainly because I grew up Baptist, and under the teaching of my, I'm blocking the microphone, I apologize, um, under the teaching of the church where I grew up in, Calvinism was a very bad word. Um, yeah. That's exactly right. So what I was taught was Calvinism growing up is something that's not accurate. Um, and it took three years into seminary before I realized that. And actually, fascinatingly, uh, the thing that changed it all for me, I, the Lord really was working in a lot of ways in my heart as I was studying doctrines in, in seminary, but um, there was, I remember the day, I, was, I remember the book I was reading, but it was when I realized that the doctrines of grace, the Reformed position, um, was the orthodox position of the early church, that when you study the original scriptures, when you... When you study all the original commentaries, um, Calvinism wasn't created by John Calvin. It was just, it was reestablished. It was reformed um, at that time. And, and when I realized that, I was like, 
what? <laughs> Peter was a Calvinist? Uh, I guess I have to be a Calvinist. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's who we are. Any other questions on that stuff? I know that's not really related, but you're not always sitting with a pastor in a Q&A format. So if you've got random questions, feel free. Um, all right, what's next? Key beliefs. What do they believe? What do the nuns believe? Um, a lot of this comes from an analysis of a more recent uh, survey, also done by Pew. Um, a really interesting article if you'd like to see it. But I, I've tried to summarize some, some core tenets that most nuns hold to. I'll try to explain them as I can, but i got four or five of them here. Uh, first one, a significant majority of the nuns do believe in a higher power. This is interesting. So uh, if you run the numbers... 17% of all nuns believe in the God of the Bible, which makes no sense to me. But they would say that the God of the Bible, the God of the Scriptures, is the God. 17%. So one out of five nuns are oddly open to the authority of Scripture. 54% believe in some other higher power. Not the God of the Bible, but they do hold to some other higher power. So that's 72%. Almost three out of four of the nuns believe in the existence of some, you know, supernatural power that uh, exists over creation. I will say that those numbers drop significantly for both agnostics and atheists. If they will self-define as those two terms, uh, it falls down to only 1% of them believe in the God of the Bible uh, and 45% believe in other higher power. So, so 46% total, um, a little less than half. Um, and, and if they believe in nothing in particular, if they're a true nun, where they say, I hold to no religion, 26% of them believe in the, in the God of the Bible. 60% believe in another higher power. So uh, it rises to 86% with them. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot of numbers, but I'm just trying to help you think about them. Um, why this is significant, it helps for evangelism. Uh, you actually do share more in common with their worldview than you realize, which is, which is interesting. Where it does change, though, second one, they view this higher power to be very unpowerful and impersonal. So it's a little bit deistic in their view. Deism, classical deism, says that um, God exists, but he set the world in motion, and then he stepped back, and he has no influence over the world. He doesn't care. He doesn't intervene. He's out there somewhere, but he's not personal. He's not a personal God. He's not an active God. Uh, their views align with that. So uh, the statistics that I read there, uh, only... 31% of people uh, believe that this higher power has um, the power to control what happens in the world. So only a third think that God actually has any power at all. 30% uh, agree with this statement that God judges pe all people. Um, so very low there. This is interesting too. Only 11% agree that God speaks to people directly. And only 17% of people believe that um, of these nuns believe that God determines what happens in their life all or most of the time. So all that to be said, that's why I use these words, unpowerful, impersonal. Though they do believe in a higher power, they don't believe in like the, the personal nature of that higher power, that that God cares for them, that that God wants to be involved in their life, that that God is able to talk with them, they're able to talk with him. It's a very distant, deistic God who really doesn't have power over the world that we see. Um, Brings us to the next one. About a third, uh, so a, min a minority to be sure, but about a third consider themselves, they would say, spiritual but not religious. 
and they regularly engage in spiritual habits of one form or another. So uh, it's 37% who would call themselves spiritual but not religious. And of all the nuns, 28% pray regularly. This is crazy to me. If you're a nun, you don't hold a religion, but you still, 28% of them pray, 29% meditate, 10% burn candles or incense for spiritual reasons. And uh, this was interesting too, random fact, 58% of them feel a deep connection with nature and the earth. So again, it, it falls into a very naturalistic worldview. I think a lot of them would be uh, a little bit, does anybody remember the movie Avatar? Where like there was this mother, what, would, what did they call her? Ina or something? Any of them move that? You remember that movie? There was some goddess or some god, but the god was the earth. And all, all beings were interconnected, and the higher power was like the unity of all life together. That, that seems to be like a very attractive worldview for uh, a nun. They, they feel connection with nature. They're spiritual but not religious. They view a higher power of some kind, but it's not personal. It's not powerful. It's just there, you know, driving existence. Um, so very interesting worldview to be sure. Uh, which brings us to um, another important fact. <clears throat> they have a few important spiritual values that I think we could quantify. One would be pluralism. Let me define that. Uh, that's the concept. Have you ever seen those coexist stickers on people's bumpers? Um, that's, that's the idea of pluralism. So we must coexist with other religions without critiquing the beliefs of one another. They want to be tolerant. They don't want to critique anybody. They don't even really care what you believe so long as what you believe is not critical or intolerant of somebody else. Their highest value is the plurality, the diversity, the, the tolerance. They become highly intolerant of you if you're not tolerant of others. The second one, individualism. This would be that uh, the idea that religion if it is true, has nothing to do with reconciliation with God. They do not hold to the concept that God you know, judges and therefore you need reconciliation with Him. They do see value in religion for bringing meaning or purpose to life. In religion, you can find meaning, community, purpose, or ritual. But all of these things can exist without an actual God in your religion. So religion is good for being a part of a community and a group. And so, so, so sort of having an individual expressive experience is important, but whether or not there's an actual God doesn't matter so much. And then the last one, subjectivity. This is really interesting to me, but uh, they value individual experiences and expression more than anything else. They value finding your truth, finding their truth. What, what their own experience is, is what defines reality. Uh, their reality. Um, religion and spirituality are experiences of finding your own truth. There's no truth to be found out there that's objective uh, and grounded. <clears throat> Does that make sense? I know these are a little bit vague in concepts, but what's interesting about this is uh, how very much so that's a part of the postmodern worldview. So I didn't put this on the, the PowerPoint, but if you want to write this down, I think there's three big influences upon folks who are nuns. And I think these are important to pay attention to as we get into some strategies for how to, how to evangelize them, how to talk with them. Um, and this is all me. This is not, you know, most of what I've said so far has come from articles or, or research studies of some kind. But 
but this part would be me. And what I'm trying to get at are, are the things that have helped shape a nun into a nun. Uh, most nuns were not born that way. Um, so how did they become someone who disassociates from religion? So the first influence would be postmodernism, which is the age that we're living in, uh, the postmodern age. It's, it's the place where objective truth died, the rise of individual expressivism, the rise of finding your truth. These are all things that have enormous cultural weight and value in our time. Um, and this religious worldview of being a nun is very consistent with postmodernism. There's a really good book, if you're, if you're interested in reading it, that sort of chronicles the rise of postmodernism in our society. It's called The Rise and Conquest of the Modern Self. It's written by a guy named Carl Trueblood, I want to say. Carl Truman. Carl True somebody. Um, it's a dense read, but it's a really fascinating book. His opening line is this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to misquote him, but it's something to this effect. Uh, this book is my attempt to answer the question of how the following statement became uh, rational in the mind of our culture. And this is the statement. I am a man trapped in a woman's body. Um, so he's trying, he's writing a whole book to try and explain why average citizens living in our world hear that statement and don't start laughing immediately. And his premise is, if you would have said that statement 30 years ago or 50 years ago, people would have thought you were crazy. But you say it today and people think that you're totally rational, that it makes a lot of sense. And he calls this the rise of the modern self, this, this idea that my world is created by my own interpretation of the world. So truth matters most in how I think, not in what is real outside of me. So it's expressive individualism, it's called, is sort of the, the deity of postmodernism. But uh, it's a really good book if you want to read it. But I think that, that that heart that has played out in the sexual revolution and in the, the political you know, realities we see in our, in our country, I think it's also played out in religion, and that's where you see a lot of this coming from. Another key influence would be um, faith experiences. That's how I'd phrase it. And what I mean there is I think a lot of nuns have previous experiences with faith in their background. So they grew up in churches and have now rejected the faith that they grew up in. They have found the faith of their parents wanting and therefore rejected it. This isn't universally true, but I think based on how fast this category is growing, it's not fair to say that nuns are being raised in households of nuns. It's not that they're being indoctrinated by their parents to have no religion. It's that they're rejecting a religion they grew up in, um, which is really fascinating because uh, personally, um, I find a lot of problems with the way American evangelicalism has, has approached um, church over the last 30 years. We've lived through what you could call a, a long season of pragmatism in the church, which is the church caring most about life lessons and practical wisdom for living. And the Bible's a good book because it teaches you some good advice for how to handle complex situations in your life. It, it focuses the Bible as a resource in your life, and you're the center of your life. And I think that that pragmatic approach has problems because it diminishes the authority of God in somebody's life. Either the Bible is God's word holding supremacy over your life, 
that's a very different concept from the Bible is a good resource for your life. Um, and so I worry about the cultural influences of 30 years of pragmatism on our, on, our, on our society. I think we need a renaissance of biblical worldview and of uh, high views of God's sovereignty. And I'm actually really thankful. You guys probably don't live in Christian research worlds, but there is a beautiful, beautiful explosion of churches just like ours all over this country. Um, God has done something pretty profound over the last 20 years um, where I believe he's really preserving the faith of, um, of his people for the next generation in a very strong way. I get very excited about that. Um, I'm hopeful that another Great Awakening is on its cusp um, in our future. Um, but pragmatism has, has played a very painful part of giving people very uh, superficial experiences of God that have not changed their life, and therefore they walk away from it. They find it wanting. So I think that's a key influence in their life. And then the third one, third key influence would be, we could sum it up in one word, wounds. Wounds. Don't underestimate that a lot of these folks have very painful, traumatic experiences in the past related to religion of some kind. Um, Especially whenever you sense heavy, heavy antagonism. Whenever you sense like a, of a, a hatred or a, a real hard resistance to talking about Christianity in particular, there's usually Christianity in the past somewhere and usually a very painful story. Uh, and it can take a lot of forms. You probably know people who have been wounded by people in the church or um, feelings of, of being abandoned by God. But, uh, but I think wounds play a significant role in the formation of a nun. Um, I think they're processing them wrong. I think that they haven't been equipped to walk through those, those painful experiences the right way. But be it what it may, it, it was there, and wounds often play a role in, in forming them. Does all that make sense? Yeah. Postmodernism. So those three, postmodernism, uh, faith experiences, and wounds would be the three biggest influences. This, again, this is just my personal thinking and, and um, conversations I've had that have formed these views. But, uh, but I think they're important ones to pay attention to. Um, and with that, let's jump into now thinking through how do we engage the gospel with these people. Because we all have friends who fall into this category, right? Like we all have um, people we know well and, and certainly quite a few strangers. If a third of our community is this way, there's far more people than we realize. So how do we build relationships to help shape the worldview of people who, who are nuns, who, who disassociate with formal religion for one reason or another. I've got six um, pieces of advice, I guess you could say. Uh, and a lot of this stuff is not going to be groundbreaking or new. Um, a lot of it, I think, reinforces what we've already seen. Evan's done a really good job of setting a good foundation for us. So I'm not going to go back and, and do any of that. God saves. We've already talked about that. God, God needs us to be a praying people in this process, without a doubt. Um, we're called to be a bold people, without a doubt. Um, those, those things are all true. Uh, and a lot of what I say tonight will apply to some of the other uh, different, different faith categories as well. But, um, but these would be my, my best tips, my best advice for how to engage with folks who really do 
uh, disassociate with religion. Number one, build relationships of sincere Christian love. Um, so start with the relationship. This is always true in evangelism, and Evan has talked about this, but I think even more so when you're talking about uh, the nuns in particular. Uh, you know, Luciana said it last week, and I think it's always true. People do not care what you say until they know that you care about them. And for folks who are disassociating from religion for one reason or another, facts aren't often the thing that are going to persuade them, but relationships will. So uh, relationships that can be persuasive with facts in a fresh way, uh, I think are the best bet. But it all starts with sincere Christian love. And that means like, like really being sincere about your love. Don't, don't view people as projects. View them as people. Love them as people. Sincerely care about your neighbors as people. Um, evangelism is an important quality of a Christian, but it should not supersede love. You know, uh, God is very clear that love is sort of the, the uh, premier virtue of, of a Christian. Um, and in fact, it's, a, it's the most evangelistic of the virtues. Um, Jesus said that all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So there's something about distinctive Christian love that is deeply evangelistic in the minds of people. It's a little bit mind-blowing to see the kind of love that a, that a Christian is supposed to give. So be those kind of people to start off. Uh, it's the only way that you're going to get a chance to really get into somebody's story, which is the second one. This is really important. Probably the most advice that I have when working with a nun. Really attempt in conversations to grasp their worldview and the experiences that shaped it. So if these people were not born, and we are taking that as an assumption, it's not always true, but for the most part, if they had experiences that shaped them, your job before you start sharing the gospel is to figure out What's their story? What shaped them? Your weapon here, your biggest weapon here, is to ask a ton of questions, as many as you can. Ask, 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 and ask some more. Feel like a detective. I mean, don't, don't come off like, a, you know, like you're digging into their past and trying to figure out everything about them. But you should, you should come across, across as somebody who's very curious about them. What do, what do you believe? Why? You know, ask a lot of what and why questions. Why do you believe what you believe? What, what things have you encountered in your life that, that led that way? Uh, you know, knowing that they're rejecting formal religion uh, can often open the door for you to ask a lot of questions about formal religion in their life. So, were you raised in church is a great question. Uh, what did, you know, did your parents have faith? Uh, what, was the, what was your church like? What do you remember about it? Um, just show curiosity and interest in understanding them, their experience, and their truth. Remember, their highest value is my truth, uh, their own expressive individualism. So anybody will talk about themselves. That's a very, uh, you know, that's, I think, one of the tenets of how to win friends and influence people. Just ask questions. Um, People like to talk about themselves. So if you ask in a disarming way, not, not being a, you know, in, in, um, the Inquisition, but, but just being a kind friend, you usually can learn a lot about somebody's worldview and the things that shaped it uh, from all those questions. Um, and as you're doing so, this brings us to number three, my other big advice for being, when talking with nuns, keep a real active ear open um, for the wounds that might be there. Um, 
and I can't emphasize this one enough. Um, you have got to, one of the best tips for evangelism that I've ever heard is to, you got to be a good listener. You have to understand where somebody's coming from so that you can apply the gospel to them and to, and to the, the, the place where they are. Um, and particularly with nuns who most likely have some experience of faith that drove them away from the faith, you, you have to key in on the places of their story where that's going to show up. If it's a true wound, they're probably going to be defensive about it. They're not going to naturally bring it up. You have to be very close friends with somebody for them to tell you the biggest, most painful experiences in their life. Right? If you think of it right now, you know, in your own brain, think about the you know, three most traumatic experiences of your childhood that formed who you are. It's hard for us to even know what they were, but if we do, we don't really want to expose ourselves. Usually, it's the traumatic, painful experiences that have caused our most problematic character flaws today, right? Like, they, they're not good things um, in our past. And so, all that to be said, people resist talking about their bad experiences. People avoid them, but those can be clues for you. So, as you're asking questions, if you realize they did have a faith experience, but they're dodging every question you ask, that's a huge, that's a huge tell. Um, and you have to be careful about, you know, how you press in there, but, but keep an ear open for wounds. Um, because the closer you get, if you, if you know one is there and you become a good friend, you can usually bring it up in a sensitive moment. You can be like, listen, you know, you never really talked about that part of your story, but I'd, I'd love to know what happened. You know, I grew up in faith, and I, I can't fathom walking away from it. You know, can, can you help me? What happened, you know? Um, and if they know you love them, if that's the ground of the relationship, maybe they'll be open to talking about it. But, you know, pay attention to what's minimized or what's avoided in conversations. As they're part of the story that doesn't make sense, where you feel like something's missing, um, especially if they're rejecting formal religion, there's usually a reason for it. If you can get them talking with a lot of questions, um, then you can hopefully address the issues that come up. Your goal here isn't to, um, you know, when, if somebody does finally open up about the reasons they left the faith, don't immediately jump into solving all of them. You know, be a listening ear. Be a compassionate friend. Be a kind person. That was hard. That would, you know, be loving and, and responsive. If if something so serious happened that they rejected God because of it, that, you know, you can come back to addressing their, you know, presuppositions that were wrong later. But right then, sometimes you just need to be a, a comforting arm and a, a shoulder to cry on if it's necessary. So um, pay attention for, for wounds. Um, number four, three verbs for you. Be patient, be bold, and look for hooks. Okay, so... Um, and this is really important in all relational evangelism. But uh, faith conversations don't come up that often. Okay? You're going to talk about the weather. weather. You're going to talk about your kids. You're going to talk about politics. You're going to talk about, you know, with friends, we talk about a lot of different topics at a lot of different times. Um, and faith questions do come up, but they don't come up all the time. So all that to be said, be uh, patient. Sometimes you're going to put out bait and try to bring up faith, bring up religion, and it won't quite work. Don't force the conversation, especially if you sense that there's a wound. Um, but wait on, on the open doors and pray for them. Pray for the Lord to sort of uh, allow the right day to come around when the right conversation comes around and, you know, nobody else is around and you're able to talk about 
the Lord for a minute. They open up for a moment about their childhood or about faith or something. Um, I love, y'all flip there if you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2. It's one of my favorite passages about evangelism. This is um, uh, Paul writing to the church in Colossae, uh, asking for their prayers as he tries to evangelize to others. But I love the way he phrases things. Colossians 4, 2 through 5, or 2 through 6. He says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. I love that. He's praying for open doors. He's showing patience there. He's showing that like he's not going to you know, bang down the door of somebody's heart. He's going to wait for it to open up. God, if God is really sovereign over salvation, if we really do believe that God is the, the, the one who regenerates a soul and draws a person to himself, uh, that convicts of sin, that reveals to us our need for a Savior, if God does that, wait for him to do it. You know, it it's okay to be patient for the Holy Spirit to ripen a moment for you to be able to have a door to get the word in. So I just love that metaphor of, of, of praying for an open door. I think it's a, a good way to be patient, a good reminder to be patient of, um, you know, as you're, as you're seeking to evangelize. And yet, second thing, also be bold. When the door opens, they don't come open very often. Go through it. You know, when there's something that happens in all of us. Uh, when, when the doors actually do open, you usually sense it. You usually get that feeling in your heart. It's somebody you love. It's somebody you've been praying for. And the moment has come upon you. You've been working towards this. And you can very often like freak out so much because you're so excited and you're so anxious all at the same time that you just yourself change the subject. You, sh- you, sh- you, you shut the door. Uh, be patient for them to open, but when they open, say a little prayer in your heart and step through. Ask the questions. Start, start pressing into um, to their backgrounds, tr- trying to understand what's, what's played out. Um, I, I love that. He, he says that as well. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You're going to see moments when it finally is ripe to be able to talk and, uh, and when they do step into it. And again, I think questions are your best way to get to the point where you can finally address things. That's your goal, is to address the wounds that are there. Be compassionate first, but you know what? What are they? What are their um, holdouts to God? What are their their um, the reasons that they've rejected the faith? What are some ways that you think that they, you know, maybe walked through that in the wrong way, um, and maybe can can reapproach it. Um, and then the last thing I would say in this same part is look for hooks. And what I mean by that is look for a way to get back into the conversation tomorrow. So if, you, if, you, if the door opens up and you're in the spiritual conversation, maybe you're not full-on sharing the gospel yet, very rarely will you get to full-on share the gospel the very first time. If you're able to have a good conversation where you realize the reason why they've rejected God, rejected formal religion, that's a, that's a win. And your goal when that conversation ends is to have a way to get back into that conversation 
you know, the next time. So what I mean by a hook is, did they ask you a question that you don't know the answer to? And can you say these words? You know what? I don't know. Let me get back to you. That's the best thing. Even if you do know an answer, sometimes act like you don't. I'm, I don't mean that. Don't lie. But, but like it's a good thing to be able to, to follow up and to head back into a conversation after it ends. Um, so look for hooks. Look for ways to, uh, to follow up afterwards. Um, even if they told you a part of their story that you think of a question to ask later and you say, hey, you, you said this happened. I, I'm so fascinated by that. Could you tell me more? Could you tell me about you know, how, how this part played out or, or whatever? Find a way to, to circle back into that conversation um, so that you can try to give answers to it. But, but as you go, um, you know, you're trying to get to the place where you can share the gospel, which we've already talked through. Um, but again, trying to get to a place where you can point them to uh, the freedom that's in Christ, the, the, the reconciliation that he's offered through the cross. Um, which brings us to number five, which um, is my whole point. Number five is the most important. Speak the grace of Jesus to thirsty souls. And right out next to that sentence, gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. So there's a really good book that I'd highly recommend you read. It's not the book we bought for you. Um, but it's called Gospel Fluency by a man named Jeff Vanderstelt. He is a pastor. I think he's still a pastor. He was a pastor um, out in um, Washington, Doxa Church. Um, I believe he's still there. Um, but it's a really good book where he talks about the importance of this concept. Um, understanding, I'm going to try to summarize it. Maybe, maybe my notes will help me here. Um, yeah, the importance of preaching the grace of Jesus to yourself all the time so that you're fluent in how the grace of God applies to all parts of life in general in conversations with with others. What I mean by that is this. How many of you know a second language? Is anybody langu um, bilingual? Okay, some of you were raised, and that's not fair. Who, who learned? Who learned a second language? What, what do you speak? What are you learning? Okay, so semi-bilingual. Well done. Well done. How about you, Josh? Are you fully fluent? I'm pretty fluent, yeah. And you were not raised bilingual. All right, so I'd like to hear, if you don't mind, for the whole group, share your story on how you, uh, how you learned Spanish uh, and when you realized that you knew it. I took two full years in college, worked with a lot of Hispanics, so I was able to use them on a daily basis, and then traveling to Chile and Costa Rica, I was able to use it and get around well in those countries when I had to. Yeah. yeah. Was there a particular day where you were like, oh my gosh, I have this? Uh, yeah. Uh, I would say probably before I traveled internationally, just worked like I was the boss of the oh, Okay. And so I was able to conduct myself. Yell at them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I could get the orders done. You know? Were you a good boss or a bad boss? Good boss. <laughs> I'm just <Yeah>. kidding. <laughs> right on. Um, yeah, so. Uh, People will often talk about an experience in learning a language where 
they will begin dreaming in the second language. Um, and that's really the marker. They, they say that's the marker of fluency is when your subconscious is able to speak. In the, you're, so you're thinking in the language that's not your native tongue. Um, I actually, myself, similar to you, I, I learned Spanish in college, um, really enjoyed it, went on a mission trip to Peru. That was very influential in my, in my life in a million different ways. And uh, for a season, thought the Lord was calling me to, to overseas mission work in uh, Central or South America. And so I just went back to college and just studied as much Spanish as I could. And I was doing an internship in, in Mexico for a summer, sort of a study abroad program. And um, when I got home, it was the day I got home, it was a long flight, and, uh, and finally got back to my house and I just fell asleep on the couch. And my parents told me that I was speaking in Spanish, like sleep talking in Spanish. Well, I don't remember dreaming in Spanish, but uh, apparently for at least a slight moment, I've lost it all. I can't, I can't do anything now. But um, for a slight moment, I was fluent. But, but that's, um, that's what fluency is. When something's in you so deeply that it just falls right out of you without even trying. There's no effort to do it. And what he talks about with the concept of gospel fluency, and I love this idea, is... He's not just talking about knowing the doctrines of the gospel, which we've talked about. God the creator, uh, man the sinner, Christ the redeemer, the response of faith. Those are important doctrines to know and to be able to articulate. But what the, the, the concept of gospel fluency is knowing how Jesus meets your spiritual thirsts, how Jesus is the grace your soul needs as it encounters all the many life experiences that we all encounter. So all of us as humans know what it feels like to feel hope. And we all also know what it feels like to have those hopes and dreams crushed. We know what disappointment feels like. We know what success feels like. We know what failure feels like. We know what temptation and mistakes and consequences feel like. We know the importance of kindness and patience and self-control. We know what human life is like because we're humans. And as Christians, we know the joy of being satisfied by Christ through all of life's disappointments. When you face trials and frustrations and your own pride and your own uh, consequences to, to failures, you know the grace of Jesus. You know that your failures don't have to be the end of the story because you know the grace of Christ. So his, his point in the book, and it's a really good book in this way, he, he talks about preaching the gospel to yourself all the time, reminding yourself of how God's grace applies to you every single day through all of your own turmoil moments of soul so that when you're fluent at it, when you're talking with lost people, you can spot their thirsty souls and apply Jesus to them. And you can identify with them in their own pains and point them to the Savior in a contextualized way to their own circumstances. So, and it's a beautiful way to get to gospel doctrine. Gospel fluency allows you to sort of get ripe soil, so to speak, so that you, the, the, the seed, when you throw it down, is on a soft heart. The, the cross applies to everything. We need the truth of the gospel every single day. Um, our thirsty souls are always looking for an idol to lean upon. We're always looking for something in this world to give us satisfaction. Uh, and we were made to be satisfied in Christ. Uh, Augustine, uh, the great saint of Hippo, um, 
has that great line, every soul, what is it? Until it its yes, until it finds its rest in Christ. Every soul is restless until it finds, I forget how he phrased it. He was from Egypt, so I'm sure he spoke in a different language. But something to the effect of every soul is restless until it finds its rest in Christ. If we know that that's true, uh, we need to learn to spot restless souls and help them find rest in Jesus. Uh, really good scripture that points this out, Jeremiah chapter 2. Verse 13, I love this one so much. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, God is calling out the people of Israel, and he, he says that they've committed two evils before him, two sins. First, they've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. And second, they've hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I just love that because I think that is the condition of all of us <laughs> every day of our life until we find Christ. We forsake God who, you know, we know a secret to all the nuns. They do believe in God. Even if they're atheists, they believe in God because Romans chapter 1 tells us God has made His invisible nature and His eternal attributes clearly seen in the things that have been made. So everyone knows that God exists. But what do we all do? We forsake the fountain of living waters. We forsake this God who's clearly in control. And we hew out for ourselves cisterns that are broken and can't hold water. We try to be satisfied by things that cannot satisfy. And the point is to be able to discern and spot people holding their broken cisterns so that you can say, hand that over to me and take this, the fountain of living water. Um, and I want to just give you two practical examples from my own life um, where this has worked, where this has sort of played out. Uh, usually shows up when somebody's facing a crisis. So whenever you are having a conversation with somebody and they're walking through a crisis, it's a good God moment, just like, you know, dial in. Uh, one of mine, a good buddy of mine from uh, college, roommate, very close friend, even to this day, uh, did grow up, he, he's a nun, and ever since the word grew up in, um, I would say, a very nominal Christian household, but uh, in high school, uh, sort of an anarchist of soul, but he just wanted to be different than other people, and he, he had a few intellectual arguments against God, but, uh, but rejected Christianity, uh, decided to call himself an agnostic. He's actually really open to Christianity today. He's still not saved, to my knowledge. Um, but we've had a lot of good conversations through the years. He's a dear brother in a lot of different ways. But uh, this was after college. A few years later, I was working for a parachurch ministry, uh, not a church at that time, but um, but he calls me one day and he was like, "Hey man, how are you?" We hadn't talked in a while, uh, and I was curious why he was calling. Um, he was like, "Hey, do you guys need any like help in your ministry in your in your organization?" I was like, "What do you mean?" And he was like, I, "I'd just be willing to do some volunteer work," and I was like, "I mean." why? He was like, well, I got a DUI and I have to do some <laughs> community service work. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, awesome. Let me make sure I'm allowed. But I'm thinking to myself, praise God, he's got to do 20 hours and hang out with me. I can, I can just, you know, share Jesus with him. And also, why did he get a DUI and what is going on in his life? And like, man, I just was excited. I mean, bad for him, but, uh, but it's one of those moments where you know, like, you, we all, man, that's, that's just a dumb mistake. And, uh, and people don't make those mistakes without reasons usually. So 
and, and certainly not my friend. He's a, he's a careful guy and a, and a pretty smart guy. So I could tell something was up. So I got permission um, to put him to work and he came and helped us. And, and I didn't berate him the whole time. I didn't sit there and, and like talk to him the whole time. But we had several lunches and several really good conversations where I was able to ask, you know, a lot of questions. Man, how are you? How's your family? Why'd you do that? Why were you drinking that night? Why did you drive? What did your wife say when you told her? What, you know, what's it cost to get out of a DUI thing? Man, what is, what is this going to do to your career? What is this? You know, you get to, and, and brokenness is just spilling forth from the guy again and again and again. And I got to share the gospel with him in the midst of that. But you, when, when somebody is walking through a crisis and walking through brokenness and exhibiting signs of looking to substances and other things to find satisfaction, it's the moment when you can say, man, there's, I, know it, for, I, I won't get into the details of his circumstances because you might meet him someday. But, um, but in the particulars, you can usually find a way to connect them to Christ and, and uh, point them to the satisfaction of Jesus. Another example, the second one would, would be from my wife real actively right now. She's uh, uh, become good friends with our next door neighbor who is a stay-at-home mom, but she's desperately looking for a job right now. I think she actually found one finally, but, but she's kind of, um, she's had a hard time. She's, she's tried a lot of different jobs and in the friendship with my wife has, my wife's, my wife is a nurse by trade and now she's a loan officer, but somehow uh, she's become the career counselor for our neighbor and she like looks over her resumes and she just advises her on all these interviews and all this, she just talks to her all the time. Well, it was interesting, like the things weren't lining, things weren't making sense in the conversations with, with my wife. My wife was sensing, why are you so desperate to find a job? So she starts pressing in and just asking some questions and she, she comes to find out that her marriage is in shambles, her husband is like telling her, you need to find a job immediately because I'm leaving you and you need a way to support yourself. And um, it's, it's a really painful situation on a lot of levels. But in the midst of all that, you know, she's been able to, to, you know, see a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of longing in this woman's heart and point to the Lord. I mean, she, she's very broken right now over the, the likely loss of her marriage and, um, you know, this, this place that her husband has held in her heart for so long and the pain that she's feeling. And my, my wife, it's great. She gets to point out, you know, my husband can't fulfill my heart either. And, and he falls short of me all the time. And, <laughs> and, uh, but, but through that, through identifying the, the ways that I do fall short and I do disappoint her, she's able to, to point to the satisfaction she has found not in me, but in Christ. It's, you get what I'm saying? Looking for thirsty souls and helping them find Jesus. I think that's really our best shot in most evangelism, but especially with nuns. They, it's easy to think of them as irreligious, but they're really not. They're religious in their own way. They're religious with a irreligious viewpoint, which doesn't mean that they don't have beliefs. They have beliefs, and they're not just going to... It's not like they have never heard about Jesus, and therefore all they need is the facts. They need, they've heard about Jesus in a way that's incorrect and isn't true, and they, they're not seeing him as the Savior he is. So you want to try to identify the thirst in their souls and point them to the way that Jesus 
meets them. I, I think Jesus did this perfectly with the woman at the well. That's probably the best example in the Bible of it, um, which, you know, he's Jesus, and we can't really, you know, be perfect in his example at this. He, he, what happens there is John chapter 4, uh, out of nowhere in the midst of the conversation, he says, go, go fetch your husband. And he has the information that you won't in a conversation. He knows her wound. He knows the brokenness. He knows the thirst. But he goes right at it, which I just love. Jesus stares square in the face of your deepest, darkest secrets, and he's not afraid of them at all. You know, that's, uh, that's gospel confidence right there. I will talk about the thing that you won't talk about with anybody. And I love you in it. You know, just, man, what a, what a Savior we have. But, uh, but he looks at it squarely. He, he, calls her, uh, he calls her pain for what it is. And then he shows her, I'm the, I'm the fountain of living waters. Believe in me, and you won't ever be thirsty again. I'll become in you a well that never runs dry. You know, it's, it's that exactly, speaking, speaking himself to a thirsty, thirsty soul. So... Um, try to be gospel fluent. Part of that is absolutely learning to apply God's grace to yourself. Um, so if you struggle there, I'd, I'd really encourage you to get this book and read it. Um, it's a good way to begin to uh, medicate the wounds of your own heart with the grace of, of Christ. Um, if you grew up like I did in the Southern Baptist Church, which I love the Southern Baptists, uh, they're my heritage. I came to faith by their... Um, by their ministries, and um, I, I have a lot of respect for their uh, a lot of what they do. So I, I don't want to badmouth Southern Baptists, but if you grew up in pragmatism, you probably also grew up in Pharisaicalism, which means you know what it feels like to be judged. You know what it feels like to try to perform for approval. That's not our faith. That's not our religion. So if that's you and you're still there, Maybe you need Jesus for your thirsty soul and, and to be reminded that Jesus is not impressed with you on your, uh, on your worst day, to be sure, but he's also not impressed with you on your best day. <laughs> and uh, there's really nothing we bring, but he loves us anyways. And uh, he, he brought it all so that we can be with him. So he's a good God. Remembering that is, is real important. And then this is just number six. Um, I would say that it's a trite one to be thrown in, but it's not. I want to ground us in Calvinism, shall we say. Above all else, pray and then pray again. Let me just remind you, and and this is probably the right way to close the whole class. God is the God of salvation. He is the one who saves. Uh, He's sovereign over salvation. Our words and our persuasions can't save anyone. No one comes to faith with a human reordering of thoughts. Uh, We should be earnest. We should be loving. We should seek to persuade. We should try to give answers to questions. We should try to speak the gospel clearly, which Paul says we ought to do. Um, But above all, we really have to entrust these moments and these people to God. He loves them more than we do. He's the only one able to convict them of sin, help them see the need for their Savior, Um, and help them uh, come to that place of faith. Salvation is this really confusing in the scriptures interplay that makes no sense to our minds between God's work and man's work. And what I mean by that is it's told 
to us in Ephesians 2. Salvation is by grace through faith. You know, people do something to be saved. No one has ever been saved in a completely passive uh, act. God is doing something as well, but he brings about a response in our hearts that is, I love you, Jesus. I repent of my sin. I beg you to save me. God makes that happen, but the person does it. So, uh, And he often does it. God brings that work about through the words of other people. We proclaim the gospel. He's under it, bringing about change, and then he brings about a person's response of faith. So all that to be said, salvation is a mix between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, but you cannot take God out of the picture and have a saved soul. It will never happen. So all that to say, pray, and then pray again, and then pray some more. You know, our, our responsibility in evangelism is to, um, you know, uh, what, did, what did Calvin say, or uh, Spurgeon? He said, I, I evangelize like a Arminian, and I, I preach like an Arminian, I sleep like a Calvinist. Thank you, Josh. Um, it's a great quote, but, uh, but it's probably the right approach in evangelism as well. You, um, you persuade with clear words, but you pray and beg God to do the, the saving work because he's the only one who can. Questions, thoughts, concerns, confusions, things that can help clarify. That's a lot of words. Yes? Like, uh, can you give an example like, or? Say, like, coworkers discuss when they're like more agnostic, I guess, say that they believe there might be a higher power, but they're like, it's not, it's not powerful or impersonal. So there's really like no reason for them to like look any further. So, um, I mean, does anybody else want to answer this before I try? But what's your normal approach right now? Have you have you tried anything? Has anything worked? As far as like answering it? Yeah. I, I don't know. Kind of usually just diverse. I haven't really got a chance to So generally speaking, my best weapon in all these conversations is why. It I mean I just ask that question almost almost religiously. Um, so if they say, you know, I I just don't believe in a in a personal God, I you know. Well, why? You know, why do you believe that? Because you, you sort of, in these conversations, it allows you to remain, uh, it, it keeps you from having to play defense. It forces them to continue to build rational supports for their own worldview, which most of the time don't exist, and as they try to articulate it, it's going to fall apart. So. Um, all that to be said, I would, I would ask why and see what they say. You know, why do you believe that he's impersonal? Usually in that line of questioning, the important, the way I always land things is in revelation of God in Scripture. So for people to believe in an impersonal God, the only way God, I'll usually try to get to the point of being able to say, so does this impersonal God, do you believe he requires anything of you? Do you think he'll judge you someday? Do you think he has a standard for your life? No, I don't. Well, what if, what if he did? What if he did have a standard? How would he have to, how would, how would he make that known? 
um, you know, and you can sort of point out that Christianity believes in a God who, who did make that known. He decided to speak. He, um, he created it all, but then opened up his mouth and began interacting with us and gave us a record of that. Um, and, and then you sort of have to make them reject that Christianity is true, which is hard to do. But yeah, it's a tough one. A really good book is um, Reason for God by Tim Keller. He's, he's a really good, if, if you have people who are educated, atheists and agnostics, that, that might be the best book I've read on giving rational, educated responses to some of their most common objections. He, he goes through the, first, the, the six biggest reasons people don't believe in God. Uh, and he answers them, the six biggest objections, and then he, the second half is the six biggest reasons that you, <laughs> you can't avoid it. Like, uh, so answering the six biggest objections and then giving six really good um, reasons for it. Yeah? Well, to that, the reason why you ask for, for why is because, I don't know, the apathetics are often the most frustrating to talk to, I just don't care. But you'll find that they do care when they start articulating it because maybe they're just calloused at that point from wounds in the past and they yeah. can kind of get into that. And it's hard to be angry at a God that you don't believe exists, so you can't be atheist at that point. And so, I don't know, you start to kind of get them thinking. Yeah, for sure. There's a, there's a lady in our um, in our neighborhood right now who's about to move away, but my wife's become friends with this year and she uh, I don't know her story at all I don't know what she believes I am a hundred percent positive there's a wound though she she knows I'm a pastor and she uh, she just makes all these little slight comments that are that are they're not hateful it's just like she's very uncomfortable with God and with um, and she, in that discomfort, almost puts forward this very strange uh, personality whenever God comes up. Or she, she came into our house just recently and saw our, our, our first room has like a, a few bookshelves with a lot of my books. And she walked over there and she was like, what are these? Your husband has a lot of dictionaries. And she was looking at them. And then she saw that it said, you know, commentaries and stuff. And she was like, oh, commentaries. And she touched her finger to it and she goes, like almost like, you know, she was sizzling against the, but it's it's just a million things like that where you're like, wow, you, uh, that's not the worst one, but, (laughs) but she's got a wound for sure. I don't, I don't know what it is. We'll hopefully get a chance to talk to her before she leaves, but. Anybody else? I know we're short on time, but well, I'll wrap it up um, with with a word of prayer. But um, hopefully, those things will help um, in in evangelism. There's no uh, easy answers to any of the questions. It's relationships. It's prayer. It's trusting in the Spirit. It's trying to speak with patience and with boldness and courage. Uh, do your best, and, and the Lord will honor that. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for your grace. And uh, would you guide us as we try to uh, be faithful witnesses of your gospel to the people around us? Lord, would you, by your grace, um, Father, wake up this nation. Would you do what you've done many times before with a, with a great awakening of, 
of faith. Would you help people to see the glory of your name, the glory of your son, and um, would you bring people to saving faith through the, for, through the testimony of your church? Um, it's how you've always done it. I pray you do it again. And would you do it through us? We ask all this in your powerful name. Thank you.